Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. Last episode, I warned of descriptions of the medical issues these women suffered, and that applies to this episode, as well as this one containing some posthumous procedures done that some may not want to hear. Welcome back to the stories of the Glowing Girls. Last time I left off with Marguerite Carlo finally finding a lawyer that would take on her case. They now have allies and are making progress, but they still have plenty of uphill battles to get through on top of dealing with their declining health. Marguerite's case made the local news, and because of this, USRC's numbers of dial painters left dwindled down to only a few, and the studio they had helped set up at Waterbury Clock Company banned lip pointing. But the clock company had just had an employee, Francis Spletschotter, die in February of 1925, just weeks after first getting sick. She died of jaw necrosis, which bored through her cheek, which could have also played a role in that decision. The USRC lawyers had filed a motion to strike out Marguerite's complaint, arguing the case should be taken to the Workmen's Compensation Bureau, where it would have failed since it wasn't a compensable disease. But the judge decided that this case should be decided by a jury. Hazel Couser's family joined in the lawsuit with a claim of $15,000 worth $203,000 today. Marguerite's sister, Sarah Mullifier, finally quit her job at the studio, too. Catherine Wiley from the Consumers League and Dr. Hoffman, the statistician, continued to write President Arthur Rader, who did his best to put them off. Although he had actually read the Drinker Report, and he saw that they did blame the radium for the women's problems. They had methodically went through the ingredients in the paint, marking them all as non-toxic except when it came to the radium in it, and they reported that it was ample evidence of dangers of overexposure. Radium ingested will find its way into the bone, acting like calcium. Cecil Drinker wrote, Radium, once deposited into the bone, would be in a position to produce peculiarly effective damage, many thousands times greater than the same amount outside. The table of the test results of the employees, which was the only thing that had been sent to John Roach at the Department of Labor that stated their blood was practically normal, was analyzed by the drinkers and they noted no blood from the USRC employees was entirely normal. Some had large changes in their blood, while others were noted practically normal, but not a single one, not even a woman that had worked there for only two weeks, had completely normal blood. They also specifically commented on Marguerite Carlo stating that they believed her present condition was caused by the years spent working at the plant. Rader decided he was, quote, mystified by their conclusions. They sent letters back and forth arguing the cause, with Dr. Drinker insisting that it was the radium, and Rader sure that there had to be another cause that they needed to find. Meanwhile, Dr. Alice Hamilton learned that the drinkers had not published yet because they believed they should first have Rader's consent, which obviously he wasn't going to give. So Dr. Hamilton and Catherine Wiley came up with a plan to have John Roach request the results, which they believed would force Rader's hand. But Roach informed Wiley that he had seen the drinker report and it put the company in the clear. Wiley told Hamilton, who knew the drinkers, and she wrote to Catherine Drinker, informing her of the misrepresentation of their data. Cecil Drinker immediately wrote to Rader again asking to publish, stating it was in his best interest to let the public know he was working to get to the bottom of it, but Rader only referred him to Mr. Stryker, the company's attorney. Drinker became impatient and asked John Roach what the company had sent him about the study. When he saw the copy of the letter that Veet had sent, he saw that they had lied about it. When Roach learned that he had only received a misleading portion of the report, 
He requested the full copy, but was also referred to Mr. Stryker. Dr. Drinker met with Rader and then demanded the full copy be sent to Roach. If this was done, he wouldn't publish. Rader agreed, but instead of just giving Roach a copy himself, he merely passed demands on to Mr. Stryker. Mr. Stryker took him a copy but refused to let him keep it, instead informing him that it would be available anytime at his office and would only be provided to the department when it insisted. And when they did, he sent it to Andrew McBride, Roach's boss, who had been furious when Roach had given Catherine Wiley the list of names and that she had gotten involved. Although Dr. Hoffman's study did not need any sort of consent, and when Rader asked him to defer publishing his paper, Hoffman told it was already sent to the American Medical Association to be added to the handbook. He also had already agreed to give a copy to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but these were specialist publications and they wouldn't be seen by the general public. Rader also hired his own specialist, Dr. Frederick Flynn. He specialized in industrial hygiene, like Dr. Drinker, and was the assistant professor of physiology at the Institute of Public Health at Columbia University and had been a director for several mining companies. Rader agreed to fund a study for him, and he began a tour of the plant at Orange the next morning. He also got access to other firms through the contacts at USRC, including Waterbury Clock Company, and did physical exams for the dial painters, at first without cost to the companies, although he was later paid by the firms employing the women, and he would tell them that they were in perfect health. Meanwhile, Catherine Schaub had had a rough winter. Her stomach began to bother her so much that she couldn't retain solid food anymore and ended up having an abdominal operation. She was continually seeing dentists and doctors, but to no avail, and was now unable to work anymore. Grace Fryer still had her job at the bank, and the infection in her jaw was clearing up, but the strapping treatments that Dr. Humphreys had her do for her back and her foot were no longer working. She had been getting chiropractic treatments, but she said they, quote, became so painful that I was compelled to stop taking them. Grace's friend and Molly Magia's sister, Quinta McDonald, had spent nine months in a plaster cast that covered most of her body to try to treat the pains in her hip and her leg, and finally had had it taken off. But despite this, she only got worse. She couldn't manage to walk to her sister Albina's house, who had just announced that she was pregnant after four years of trying. Marguerite's condition wasn't improving either, and her infected facial bones were now impairing her hearing. Most of her teeth were now gone, and her lower jaw was fractured on the right side. Her condition made Josephine Smith finally quit her job dial painting. Dr. Hoffman and Dr. Neff sought out help in the form of Sabin von Suchaki, and the USRC founder agreed to help. They admitted Marguerite to the hospital to try to find out what was wrong with her. A week later, Dr. Hoffman read his paper before the American Medical Association. His was the first study to publicly connect the girls' illnesses to their work. His opinion was, quote, the women were slowly poisoned as a result of introducing into the system minute quantities of radioactive substance. The word minute was important in there because the radium companies, all of them, not just USRC, believed dial painting was safe because there was such a tiny amount of radium in the paint. Hoffman had put together that the amount wasn't the issue. It was the cumulative effect that it was having on the women because it wasn't leaving their systems. Specialists knew as early as 1914 that radium could deposit in the bone and make changes in the blood, but they thought it was a good thing as it stimulated the bone marrow to produce extra red blood cells. The problem was it would turn into overstimulation and the body couldn't keep up, so in the end it would end up destroying the red blood cells, cause anemia and bone necrosis, among other things. Hoffman suggested that the disease should be added under the workmen's compensation laws. 
Catherine Wiley was actually campaigning at the time through the Consumers League to have radium necrosis added to the list of compensable diseases. Hoffman added that he had looked for other cases across the U.S., not find any, but also wrote that the disease appeared to be latent for several years before showing itself. USRC was the first dial painting company, so it had been running the longest. Hoffman and von Sachaki were surprised that there were no other cases, though, although they still believed that the radium poisoning was occupationally related. But to USRC, this was clear evidence that it was not. But von Sachaki also revealed the secret formula of Undark, the paint used by USRC, to Dr. Hoffman. One thing that was different was that unlike at other places, they used mesotherium or radium-228, not radium-226, which was what was used widely in things like tonic waters and pills. Hoffman commented in his paper that it was more appropriate to use the term radium mesotherium necrosis. When news of his report showed up in the headlines, the radium industry fought back. While they argued against him, the paper was only published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, not exactly a popular read with the general public. They were also attacked for him being a statistician, not a medical doctor, and the women's allies were painfully aware of that and the lack of authority it gave him. The women needed a medical doctor that had the authority and would be on their side. As luck would have it, the county physician position had opened up and Dr. Harrison Martland came into the picture. He had shown interest in the cases in the past and had met some of Dr. Barry's patients. He had also tried to arrange an autopsy when Hazel Couser died, but she was buried before Marlon could make the request. But by his own admission, he had lost interest before. What regained his attention was that on June 7, 1925, the first male employee of USRC died. This was Dr. Lehman, the chief chemist who had scoffed at the drinkers when they were concerned about the lesions on his hands. He was 36, dying only after being sick for a few weeks. It was too quick for a normal case of anemia, so Dr. Martland was asked to do an autopsy. Dr. Martland suspected it was radium poisoning and asked for help from von Sachaki and Howard Barker, who worked for the USRC's lab. They reduced his bone to ash and then tested the ash with an electrometer, which showed his remains were saturated with radioactivity. While they worked together, von Sachaki asked Dr. Martland if he would help the dial painters. And so he went to meet Marguerite Carlo, who was still in the hospital. Also visiting her was her sister Sarah Mullifier, still needing a cane to walk and who had lost weight over the past year and had noticed over the last week that she bruised easily. Her teeth were now aching too and her gums would bleed. Dr. Martland noticed she was also not well and she confessed the black and blue marks were painful. He had tests run and she was very anemic. She soon declined faster and was also admitted to the hospital, sharing a room with her sister. Dr. Martin wanted to test the two sisters to see if they were radioactive, but since they couldn't exactly take bone from them, he and von Sashaki devised two new methods. One was a gamma ray test, using an electroscope to read gamma radiation from the skeleton, and an expired air method, blowing through a series of bottles into an electroscope so that the amount of radon could be measured. The second one was based on the idea that if the radium was in their jawbones, the radon gas it gave off would be exhaled in their breath. They then took these to the hospital to try. They started with Sarah, who had become so ill that she had been moved to another room. The first test showed one and a half times the amount of the normal levels of radiation, but on the breathing test, it showed three times the amount. They did these tests on June 16, 1925. On June 18th, a week after she was admitted to the hospital, Sarah passed away at 35 years old. Martlin conducted an autopsy the same day, although test results would take time to come back. 
He also spoke to the media, stating he only had suspicions about what caused her death, but if he was right, the poisoning can take so long to manifest that he thought it was possible it had been going on across the country for some time without anyone knowing. Sarah's death made the front page of the New York Times. Of course, the company denied his claims, stating that she was examined back in June of 1924 when the drinkers did their study, and they took the position they did back then that nothing was found in their plants. As for the connection to the death of Dr. Lehman, they claimed that the amount that she had handled compared to him was so infinitesimal it couldn't be considered hazardous. Dr. Martland found traces of it in her autopsy, though. The leg she had been limping on was four centimeters shorter than the other one, and her bone marrow, which should have been yellow and fatty, was dark red all the way through. Dr. Martin understood how radium and the rays it gave off worked. The first type, alpha rays, were very short and a thin layer of paper could cut them off. The alpha rays made up 95% of all of them, and they were the worst kind, but they could not get through skin. The gamma and beta rays are what anyone handling radium protect themselves from, since they could penetrate the body. But, Dr. Martland was realizing that in Sarah's body, the alpha rays were there in the radium deposits in her bones, and that the bone marrow was being constantly bombarded by these rays. He estimated that there were 180 micrograms of radium in her whole body, yet her whole body was radioactive. Her leg and her jaw showed the most, just as her symptoms had indicated. This was an important discovery that connected all the women's cases. Grace's aching back Quinta's arthritic hip, Sarah's leg. The radium had settled in their bones in different places and to different degrees, and so caused pain and problems in those places. But it was all caused by radium they had ingested while they had lipped, dipped, and painted. Dr. Martland did another test, strapping dental film to bone, and left them in a dark room in a box. On normal bones, nothing happened even after months. On Sarah's bones, within 60 hours, they had caused exposure on the film. This meant that although Sarah was gone, her bones were still radioactive, and since radium has a half-life of 1,600 years, would be for centuries. But there was no known way to remove the radium from the human body. Finally, there was a diagnosis for the girls, but there would be no cure. Sarah died, Cecil Drinker wrote to Rader to inform him that he was arranging for the publication of his report. He had found out what happened with the report that was supposed to go to John Roach and was angry that the company had not kept his word. Stryker threatened to sue, but Dr. Drinker's brother happened to be a corporation lawyer and told Drinker, tell him to sue and be damned. So Drinker went ahead and published, calling their bluff. His report had been the first filed on June 3, 1924, and would be published August 1925, more than a year after submitting it to USRC. The company and other pro-radium people tried to dismiss everything, but it was starting to not look good for them. Now Martlin took his testing equipment back to the hospital to measure Marguerite for radium, now believing it was alpha rays that were drilling holes into her jaw. She struggled through the breathing test, and her results showed 11 times more than the normal amount. It was good for the legal cases, at least. The family had added Sarah's name to the suit now, too. Her lawyer, Isidore Kalich, came and interviewed her, taking formal testimony so that no matter what happened, he had it for the case. Catherine Wiley helped Dr. Martin get in contact with some of the other girls that he knew had, been, had to be affected. Catherine Schaub was one of the girls who was actually doing well that summer. Her stomach issues had gotten better after her operation, her jaw was better, and the infection in her mouth had cleared up. Quinta McDonald wasn't doing so well, though. Now her teeth were spontaneously falling out. 
so she went to see Dr. Neff, who had treated her sister Molly. He had been working with Marland, so referred her to see him. Then Grace Fryer, whose jaw was now better and seemed in good health, but whose back hurt more each day, went to see him. Every single one, he told that there was radium in their systems, but that it was incurable. For Catherine, at least, she found it a relief to at least have a diagnosis. She said, I was not as frightened as I thought I would be. At least there would be no groping in the dark now. She also stated the county medical examiner's diagnosis furnished perfect legal evidence for a lawsuit. The diagnosis gave her hope. Grace, though, was angry. She remembered when Simon von Sachaki had told her, don't do that, when he noticed her lip pointing. She realized he had known. And von Sachaki was there when Marlin tested her and told her she was radioactive. And so she immediately asked him why he didn't tell them. He told her that the matter wasn't under his supervision, so there was nothing he could do. Earlier that year, he had told Hoffman that he had tried, but was opposed by those in charge of personnel. Von Schocki had also done the tests, and his levels were higher than anyone that had been tested so far. Grace, Kinsa, and Catherine Schaub wanted to bring a lawsuit against USRC, just as Marguerite had, and so Kinsa went to see the same lawyer, Isidore Kalich, but he had to tell her that the statute of limitation had run out for the three women. The Workmen's Compensation Bureau, where the company wanted the cases to be heard, had a five-month statute of limitation in New Jersey. Marguerite was taking her case through the federal court system, which had a two-year limit, and she had filed 13 months after she'd left the company. But for Quinta, it had been more than six years since she left, even though she didn't have symptoms until 1923 and was only diagnosed a few weeks ago. And so this new group of girls started the search for someone to represent them too. Catherine Shaw became more stressed at her diagnosis and had already developed mental health issues after her cousin had passed away. She consulted a nerve specialist several times, but he couldn't help her stop her spiraling thoughts. Soon, she couldn't eat, her period stopped, and by the end of the year, she was confined to a hospital for nervous disorders. Marguerite was still holding on in the hospital, but the radium had eaten most of her lower jaw away, and her blood was almost white, with a blood count at 20%. She continued to hold on for weeks, but with a weakened immune system, she contracted pneumonia. She managed to make it home for Christmas, but at 24 years old, she passed away on December 26th, two years after she had first gone to have a tooth pulled. But as the first to file suit, she hadn't gone quietly, and the others would keep fighting in her stead. And I'm stopping here. We'll continue next week, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.